Hello and welcome to the Let's Talk Azure podcast with your hosts, Sam Foote and Alan Armstrong. If you're new here, we're a pair of Azure and Office 365 focused IT security professionals. Each episode, we talk about a specific topic in the space. This week, it's episode 19 of season three. We're going to have a chat around Azure DevOps, a suite of tools to enable effective development practices and modern collaboration for software teams. Hey, Alan, how are you doing this week? Hey, Sam, not doing too bad. It's been a short-ish week, but busy. It kind of feels like doing five days in four. Yeah, we've had double back-to-back bank holidays, haven't we? It's been... (laughs) It's been good, but also, yeah, on the other side of it, like you say, compressing five days worth of, (laughs) it seems, into four, right? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. It's, um, yeah, we've been doing quite a lot, haven't we? So, Especially when you're sort of um, talking to people in other parts of the world that don't have, (laughs) you know, bank holidays as well, right? You know, uh, it's business as usual over there. So, yeah, it's definitely catch up (laughs) for sure. Um, so yeah, this this week we're gonna um, have a chat around Azure DevOps. Um, I'm sort of gonna lead the. Um, Alan's gonna ask me questions. I'm sort of gonna lead the answers. But I think it's fair to say that Alan spends nowadays just as much time in DevOps as I do. <laughs> so he's definitely <laughs> parts of it. Yeah, parts yeah. of it. Probably not the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I suppose I've got a bit more knowledge from the development side, but um, Alan is definitely a. Um, uh, power like user of last, last six months in it <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> cool um cool right then so let's let's kick off so you know what is azure devops aiming to do okay so i think i think the first thing i want to just sort of explain is that i kind of don't agree with the name right and that's a bit of a weird it does kind it it does make sense but because of what DevOps is like, you know, uh, continuous integration and continuous delivery. It almost makes it sound like it's just a tool for, you know, DevOps practitioners, you know, um, when really what it is, is it's a, it's a collection of sort of developer orientated tooling. Um, so, you know, in its name, you know, sort of develop, you know, if you take it as sort of like developer operations, it makes sense as well, you know, because you've got collaboration tools um, to basically help you to build effective software in a more uh, modern way, should I say. Um, so if, you, if you're if you used to other um, development platforms um, such as um, Jira, uh, GitLab, uh, GitHub, um, you, you can, you can if, if think about it as Microsoft's um, version of, of those uh, product toolings. It's obviously got a bit... Um, different recently because of uh, Microsoft's ac- acquisition of GitHub. So they're more uh, tightly coupled than they've ever been, really. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll we'll talk about that in a bit more depth. But um, effectively, what DevOps is aiming to do is give you the tools um, to, to build and ship um, mainly software projects. But we'll talk about that there's actually tooling in here that, gone, that goes way beyond um, software products, and and maybe we'll talk about some of that as well. Um, So it helps you to build and ship your code faster, um, but also it it enables you to collaborate with your teams as well and to do testing. So it's not just purely development focused. It's also uh, project management focused, um, stakeholder focused, um, testing and UAT focused. Um, So so it really is a collection of um, different tools, an ecosystem, a platform, if you will. 
Okay, so it's not just about DevOps. It's it's all about you know potentially product management and um, you know that that whole development suite that you said around some of those other products. So it's a bit more than just solely DevOps. So okay, yeah. So what's what are some of the features in DevOps then that make you know build you know, make that sort of product suite? Okay, so there's sort of six main areas that I'm going to. I'll jump into a bit more depth on each one, but I'll just sort of highlight, you know, call it out um, each each area now. Um, the first one is boards, which is uh, imagine um, your project management system. So if you're uh, if you're used to a Jira or Asana or or, or something of that nature, um, that's what boards is for. Um, I'll, I'll jump into boards in a bit more depth later. Um, Azure repositories. So um, this is um, Git and um, TFS hosting. Um, so a, a place for you to store um, your code and to collaborate on that code. Uh, think GitHub um, in that regard. Um, we've got Azure DevOps pipelines, which is probably the closest thing to DevOps that's there. Pipelines is um, uh, the ability to to um, um, automate the build and deployment of your code. So if you're using things like um, uh, GitHub Actions, um, GitLab, um, uh, I can't remember what it's called on the Atlassian side. Bitbucket pipelines? Is it? I can't remember. But there's a Bitbucket um, product as well. Um, so there's there's many different um, many different other sort of separate products out there um, to do DevOps. Um, but if it, if you're if you're currently using um, something like that, you're going to feel very at home with um, with with pipelines. Uh, then we've got test plans. Test plans is all around manual, both manual and automated testing. Um, so it's really an area to to plan your testing uh, strategy and to to gain feedback. Um, we've got artifacts. So when you when you build your software, um, you might go ahead straight away and deploy it. So to say some sort of um, production um, environment. Um, or you might, you know, your your output might actually be some sort of artifact. You know, maybe maybe your development is building some sort of library or um, package or plugin um, that's then consumed by somewhere else. Um, so artifacts gives you the ability to publish um, your your build output as artifacts and turn them into feeds so people can consume them. Um, and the last area that I'm going to talk about is DevOps Server. Um, so if you've used previous team foundation like on-prem um, infrastructure, um, this is the replacement for that. So if if we take Azure DevOps is a sort of cloud-hosted Microsoft, you know, it's a SaaS platform that you you you, you could just use and consume. Um, DevOps Server is an on-premise um, hosted version of that. So um, I'll talk through some of the benefits of that. Okay, cool. Anything else? Um, I suppose there's there's also some sort of overarching features and functionality that I suppose I should call out at this point. Um, there's also dashboards and wikis that you can create. They don't sit technically inside of any of those um, areas, um, but um, the dashboards allow you to report across, um, you know, uh, all your projects and, and everything that's going on. Um, and the wiki allows you to build um, wikis of knowledge um, databases um, for your software as well. Um, it's usually for internal um, documentation of, of what you're building. Okay, brilliant. I mean, there sounds like quite a lot there and not necessarily coming from a you know, DevOps or a development back you know, background. It sounds like quite a few key sort of features I kind of imagine would be in you know developing software. 
Yeah, yeah. I think if if you're used to like the full Atlassian suite, you know, if you're a um, a Bitbucket, a Jira, um, and and all the product suite there. Um, if you're using GitLab, they they've got a fully integrated sort of development environment. Um, th- this is this is uh, not feature equal, but this is this is the same uh, thing in in Microsoft's ecosystem. Okay, brilliant. So you mentioned the Azure boards. Um, can you give us an overview of, of what they are and what they, you know, how you use them? Okay, so um, sort sort of starting from a um, an entry point, um, it's a way to track um, work items and the progress against those work items. So um, let's say you have a requirement that comes in um, that you know the red button must now be green. Um, you could log that requirements or, or work item uh, in the system and you could track its progress um, you could you know you could um, give it documentation uh, describe what needs to be done um, attach um, governance and justification of why that change was made um, assign it to an engineer to action track as that engineer actually makes that change um, even in the code as well and then um, push that through to testing um, as well, and make sure that your test plans have been, um, uh, you know, followed uh, along that. Um, there's lots of different software um, methodolo- uh, sort of methodologies. Um, so you've got things like more agile processes like Scrum, um, more sort of basic Kanban, um, and also CMMI. Um, not so widely used in, more widely used, I would say, in the enterprise, but. Um, what um, Azure Boards has is the the concept of processes. And a process is effectively the workflow that a work item will go through. So you could say that, you know, a work item has got three different states. It's got to do, in progress, and then done. You can decide as that um, work item progresses through that workflow, what the different gates are and the checks are. For instance, like you could say, a work item can't just go from to do to done because that doesn't make sense. It must have been worked on if it was done. Um, maybe you would add a fourth state in, which is, you know, rejected. So, you know, maybe it's to do, it's on your backlog. And then you, there was a business change and you decided that you didn't need to, um, to, to make that. You might want to classify those as not implemented or rejected or, you know, put back on a backlog um, at that point. So those processes um, out of the box, um, there's a, f- a a few that y- that you get, uh, maybe around more agile and iterative development processes, um, but you can actually go in and customize those processes as well. So if you've got extra states, um, so so for instance, I've worked in development teams where um, they've added more states in because they've got QA in between. So they might say, you know, um, it's gone from to do in progress on staging, then it's gone to QA. QA verified or QA rejected, and then it goes back to the engine. So you get that full, if there's three or four people, and this is inside the team, this is before we get to external UAT, just um, as you as you go through that development cycle, you can map out all of your different stages and gates that, that you want to. Um, so you can base it on a, um, you know, you could brace it on a Scrum template if you want. They've got they've got one of those in inbuilt, but you can customize it um, as well, and that's even possible in the cloud version um, as well. Um, I sort of um, so once you've once you 
once you're working on your work items, you can put them into boards. So um, boards are like, uh, if you've ever used any Kanban style of boards, um, thinking uh, a big one is Trello that a lot of people may have heard heard of, where you've got um, columns with cards in it. Um, So there is a Kanban focused um, view that you can use um, if you wish. And that's effectively your different states that you would take your work items through. Um, There's also backlogs and sprints. You might not call your sprints sprints. You might call them iterations. It really depends on the terminology that you use. But effectively, think that as, you know, we'll take these 10 requirements, we'll bundle them up into a sprint, and we'll work on those. Or it might be five or, you know, or you might have a time-based sprint. You might just say, we'll try and complete as much as we can in a two-week period um, that we think is reasonable, and then push that um, out as as a sprint of work. Um, so you can set up iterations uh, or sprints, iterations, um, and, and, and manage it uh, from taking items from your backlog and then uh, planning them out in sprints. You can then use the dashboarding, um, that I talked about in the reporting, um, to, to basically build graphs. So you can get your, your, um, burn down graph. You know, you, you would say that, um, you know, if you've got, um, X number of story points. Let's say you had seven story points to complete over a seven-week sprint. You want to complete one a day in theory. Um, so you could plot that on a burn down. There's many other different charts that you can see there. Um, you can track um, how much effort has been made. You can estimate effort, and then you can track against the actual effort that was burned on it um, to see if you're you're slipping and, um, and and keep control of your of your project in quite a detailed way. Um, there's also the concept of custom queries so that what you can do is you can say, okay, um, like Alan's on my development team. Um, what's Alan got in his, uh, that's assigned to, to Alan and what has he got left to complete? You know, um, is, is Alan, um, uh, slipping on some of the items that he's working on? Does he need extra help to come in and help that, you know, has the whole team, you know, um, misidentified the effort that's required um, in order to do that. So, um, so it's really ha- about having that visibility. Um, and once you have that visibility and that control, um, because it, w- once you have that visibility, it's really important then to be able to act on it. Um, you know, without that visibility, you know, you can sometimes get to the end of a sprint and go, what have we actually achieved? You know, and, um, non-technical stakeholders might go, well, you had 15 things to do, but you only managed to do seven. And um, sometimes that's completely legitimate. You know, uh, things come out of the woodwork, spanners get thrown, um, you know, that that's just what happens. So as you're going through that progress, keeping everybody up to date is really important um, because nine times out of 10, it's not a... um, it's it's something that nobody's seen in the team. So once you have that collaboration, it's not just on one person's responsibility to to make sure those um, those work items get out of the door. Wow. Okay. So that I mean, there's there's actually tons there, isn't there, to to think about. And when you talk about Trello and things like that from the Kanban perspective, I was thinking of Planner from the Microsoft side. Yep. Um, equivalent. Uh, technical. Well, yeah, as equivalent as it can be. Um, and yeah, so it sort of, sort of recap that, I guess, or my view of that is, you know, it's, it's potentially helping project management. You've got those processes, um, templates you talked about, um, to, you know, in effect, you know, to, to, 
choose which type of um, that process you want to run through. Um, you're able to put your work items in there that potentially could be uh, new features, um, changes to the code that needs to you know to, needs to happen because there's a a um, like like we're talking there may be a, a process overrunning or something like that maybe um, that just needs to be um, rectified. Um, and yeah, then there's a load of reporting and imagining the sprints or um, iterations, etc. So yeah, it seems really good, and uh, we've used it a little bit, haven't we, in our in our in our day to day, trying to track I, some of the stuff that we miss. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, f- for me, um, when I've worked in actual development teams, you know, um, I'll call it like detailed project management, like work item tracking is Mm -hmm. day and day, right? Like it's when you're in a development team as an engineer, you'll just have a list of your backlog and you know, the product, the product project managers and the product team will just make sure that you have a never ended list of stuff to do. So, you you know, you open your IDE in the morning and you work on, you just got a list, a prioritized list that you work through, right? In our world, it's a bit different. It doesn't, there's not that level, usually that level of complexity that's required as well for that, you know, real detailed and granular tracking. But what also I just wanted to call out as well is, is that there are project um, process templates in DevOps for you to track non-technical items as well. Things like um, new ideas that come in, uh, new requirements um, that you might put through a process before they actually become an item. Um, You can track risks um, that are, you know, if you, if you're working in a team that has to maintain a RAID log, um, you can you can track risks inside the system and and sort of um, bring that RAID log actually closer to your your delivery team as well, um, because then everybody has visibility of that who's who's collaborating on it, um, and it's also uh, you have the ability to bring in non-technical stakeholders as well to look at that dashboarding and that reporting. So you know, think about this as like Power BI for your project. You know, if you've got a non-technical stakeholder who doesn't really need to be in the detail, uh, but they want to understand, you know, what their rag status is on their, you know, the sprint burn down, then that's available to you as well. Um, instead of having to like update an Excel sheet and send it around to everybody, you know, it's just, it's driven from the actual work items themselves. Um, everybody's aware and everybody can access it whenever they like, because it's a sort of an open process. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a powerful feature, and we're not even sort of talking DevOps here, in, you know, as in the process. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so so how about you know, as your as your repos then? Okay, so um, yeah, if you're um, if you're currently utilizing um, a Git or TFS um, for for your code repositories, um, I mean, I would. I don't know. That's probably not the right thing to say, but I would say that probably the most popular version control system currently today is Git. That's why it features um, prominently um, within um, Azure DevOps. Um, and you get a Git, Git, a Git web um, user interface. Think GitHub um, or GitLab or Bitbucket. Um, so you have the ability to manage, it, manage your branches, uh, manage your pull requests, um, manage access for team members. Um, and what's what's great is that you can have multiple um, code repositories per project inside of DevOps as well. So if if you've got maybe um, 
you, you, you may have split your project into multiple um, code repositories. Um, they can sit all under one project um, if you wish as well. You can track across all of them. So it's not like um, a separate Git repo for each um, project and project boards are separate or, or anything like that, um, which is uh, really nice. Um, I kind of mentioned pull requests. So you have the um, very similar to um, GitHub and Bitbucket. You have the ability to open a pull request um, and there's a whole review process and triggering of CICD pipelines and verifications and validations. So um, if you're used to um, building like a pull request process and a CICD uh, process within say GitHub uh, with GitHub actions, um, this is very similar um, on, on this side as well. Um, it's also got sort of uh, grown up um, uh, what's the best way to, to, to describe it is um, uh, protections and policies in place. So for instance, some teams protect uh, their main branch and their develop or staging branches um, to stop people um, committing directly to those branches. So you can say things like in order to deploy to the main branch, which is your production branch, um, you have to go through pull request approval. Then you can say, you know, two members of the team or, you know, one other engineer and also a QA needs to sign it off, you know, and and, and a, a modern collaborative sort of development approach is where you build in the open, you know, you open a pull request, you know, and that's basically like if I've done some updates, I'll make a separate branch, a copy of the code effectively. I'll make my changes. I'll open a pull request and I'll say, hey, Alan, can you check my code for me? Because Alan may, it doesn't even matter if Alan is more senior than me or more experienced. Um, Alan could also, you know, uh, look at that code and can say, hey, Sam, it might actually be better to approach it from this way. So in a lot of times in development teams, you'll have a buddy system um, where, you know, you'll, you'll be buddied together with somebody or the whole team might just be collaborative and they might just pick them up. Um, and what, what we tend to find with a, like a modern collaborative development approach is we don't in the teams that I've worked in, we don't get people going, oh, you've named that wrong or you've indented that incorrectly or, you know, more um, opinion-based or preference-based um, change changes. It's more around, you know, people's understanding of the problem or the business um, that, that drives it. Because let's say I've just joined the payments team and Alan built the payment system from the ground up because he's been in the organization from day day zero. Um, then it might be worth getting Alan's, you know, um, input on um, whether our latest changes are going to, you know, um, meet all of the requirements and also many of the other requirements or, you know, that we, we don't know about, if, if that makes sense. Because some of these, some of these software systems can be really large and complex, and it's impossible to even understand all of the areas of the code base as well. So getting more people involved as soon as possible leads to higher quality um, software for the long run. And at the end of the day, we're here to, um, we're here for the, we're here for the business and for the, our end users and or customers. The most important thing from a, a product team perspective is that um, we've, we've uh, checked and tested everything before it's even hit any sort of staging or production environment. Um, to make that feedback loop as, as short as possible for things to go live. Cool. Yeah, I mean, 
we we use it quite a lot, don't we? And um, yeah, I can you can see how you know review code review is is great. I mean, it's probably standard, fairly standard within you know the development organ you know development world anyway. Um, but also, oh, yeah, I worth... wouldn't. I suppose I suppose it's probably worth calling out that um, it, it when we say standard, I would I think you know across the board, I think it's well accepted of the benefits of it. Um, but in terms of sort of a tightly, um, a tightly defined, um, a tightly defined process that is controlled like that, that is quite a mature process even today. Okay. Um, because, because as much as technology has helped us to improve that collaboration, it's also helped us to streamline and, you know, go around that, you know, because you know, without branch protection, how easy it is just to push some code onto the main branch, right? All you've got to do is just merge your, yeah. you know, you can even do it locally and then push it up, right? So um, so we we want to give teams the ability to, to, to have those operational efficiencies, but we've got to govern it in the right way because, you know, even I've been guilty of that in the past, you know, um, you've got a looming deadline and you've got this, you know, high priority bug it's like a two second fix oh i'll just deploy that to production um that's when you need these protections in place because you know it's everybody's got the best intentions but you know at the end of the day it might just be worth <laughs> taking a step back and, and checking things so um so open collaborative processes is is is, is the way to go moving forward that's cool and i was just going to say about um sort of an added pit to the to the um the pull request side of it is that um, when that happens as part of the, it might even be coming to the pipelines, which we'll talk about in a minute, but um, the new defender for DevOps now will annotate or comment about any, any of your code maybe being, you know, uh, less secure, maybe let's say, say vulnerable, or um, it will tell you, you know, give you some advice on it at least as part of that process now. Um, so that's yeah. really good. Yeah, exactly, and it is probably worth talking uh, about that now because the um, uh, the pipeline runners um, are are usually triggered by a pull request, and as as you've mentioned, you can have processes that check and test. Like for instance, with your example, it's a security um, a security benchmark and, and check. Um, you can have other t- tools like um, you know I've used tools in the past for code quality. You know, we all agree what our naming convention could be. So we let a robot just, you know, basically say, "Hey, Alan, you've you've you you've you've written that wrong, right?" And that completely takes the humans out of it because if it's passed the robot test, then nobody needs to talk about capitalization or indenting with tabs or spaces. Like, we don't need to have that conversation um, in in DevOps. Um, but um, as you've mentioned, there is that um modern approach to pull requests verification of those pull requests and gating there to say okay the automated processes have run everything looks good um so before even a human's even got to the pull request you would hope that those automated processes have run you jump into my report request to review it you can see the changes you could even check out the changes and run them locally if you want and you can also see the results of those automated processes running. Um, and that gives you, as the reviewer, 
as much support as possible to make the correct judgment about whether you would approve that change um, moving forward. Yeah, well, it gives you context, doesn't it, as well? And yeah, like you said, extra visibility of something's checked, check the code. You know, at the time it looks um, from a security perspective, because, you know, I'm always coming from that side. Um, you know, it looks good kind of thing. So, yeah, because if, if, if you imagine, right, you, you do an update to a React app. And that React app might have a hundred different dependencies, mm-hmm. right? And you might have just gone in to change the red button to green, right? And in the time since the last deployment, let's say the last deployment was a month ago, right? And you're coming in in a month's time. You go to, you know, you go to push a new version unknowingly because you're not even editing that part. Um, one of the packages has got a, you know, severe or critical CVE in that time. You know, Defender for DevOps is then going to kick in and go, hey, Alan, by the way, your uh, insert random JavaScript package has now got a um, critical CVE. I'd like you to, um, you know, uh, bump up to the latest minor version of that before you can proceed. You know, that type of that type of notification, that's the sort of things that just completely get missed. Because, you know, unless you have like a process or uh, an OA to go and check that. And, you know, it's somebody's job once every week or two weeks or whatever to go and bump the packages and make sure that, you know, there's good coverage um, there of, you know, of well, there's good protection there against new CVEs and, and vulnerabilities that have been uh, discovered. You know, that is immensely powerful. It's constantly looking. It's constantly checking. It doesn't reply on a human. You know, some stuff we should rely on humans. I'm not saying automate everything, right? But in this this mind-numbing task that is that is still very important, these are the sort of things that get missed. And these are the gaps that then, you know, serve us into. Um, we, we will definitely do an episode dedicated for Defender for DevOps because it's not really just Defender for DevOps. There's other security-related things. Uh, processes and procedures that should go on there for secure development for sure yeah so yeah maybe an episode on secure development slash yeah a devops security including yeah devops yeah yeah because there's shared responsibility that comes into it you know there's you know the the attack surface is just insane with custom development compared to you know other things so yeah we'll, we'll do an episode on that okay cool so we kind of talked about the pipelines. Um, so what they aim to do is, I think this is mainly the uh, CICD part, isn't it? Yep. So if if your organization um, is using um, CICD, um, pipelines is 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 what you would use um, here for that. You create um, under the hood, it's a YAML file, but there is a you still do edit the YAML file in the web interface, but there is like um, there's like helpers to add action steps in for you. Um, there's a library of um, uh, action steps and also extensions. I'll quickly mention extensions now. Actually, there's an extension marketplace. So I'll use the example of Terraform. Um, so if your pipeline is deploying maybe some Terraform infrastructure for you, that is what we um, use pipelines for. Um, there is a Terraform extension, which gives you um, things like it will install, as the pipeline runs, it will install the Terraform binaries for you. 
and it will give you quick actions in order to run the various Terraform commands. So the first thing you might do is a Terraform plan. I um, know you might, might you, you init your Terraform, you, you plan, um, and then you apply. So it, you basically add in an extension to help you map all of that out. Um, and that makes things uh, really, uh, really quick to, and, and other, other CICD platforms do, do a very similar thing. Um, but I think what's, what's probably good to call out is because there is, you know, this um, GitHub is very close. Well, it is Microsoft now. So there is, there's an overlap of features and functionality here. Um, but Azure DevOps was very well matured, especially in the pipeline space, way before the GitHub acquisition. You know, um, DevOps and pipelines was a completely standalone uh, product before that. Um, so yeah, you effectively build a um, a YAML file um, and you put actions inside of it. You you sort of say what um, operating system you want to run it on. Um, so you can do things like uh, Linux, Windows. I think you could do Mac as well, if I remember rightly. I think there's a Mac pipeline, I believe. Don't quote me on that, might not be. Um, but you basically say the environment that you want to run it in. So you might say like the latest version of Ubuntu, that's what we want to build on. That's also great as well, because if you're using those Microsoft hosted runners, you don't do anything. You just let them uh, run it uh, for you. You can also run your own runners on your own infrastructure if you want. So if you want to manage, if you want to put some extra horsepower behind it, um, maybe you've got some spare capacity on-prem, you can install the agent and run a uh, runner locally and then connect it um, to your cloud service as well. And it will handle sending the code down, running all the commands and then, you know, and, and running the pipelines for you. Um, what a really nice feature of it is, is that you can do what's called strategies, which allows you to build on multiple OSs at the same time. So you can have one pipeline. So let's say you had a cross-platform application that you wanted to build for, let's say, Windows and Linux for the moment. Um, you could build a strategy and say, I want to build on the latest version of Windows and the latest version of Ubuntu. And um, it would build on both of those platforms at the same time, but running the same steps. Um, and you can you can do some um, uh, sort of control statements to only do certain things on certain platforms and different environment variables and, and things like that. Um, you can also run tests as well as, as part of it. So what you may have in a pipeline as you have, you know, you might have an initial, um, you know, if you're deploying code, you might test it first. You know, you might do static analysis on it. Um, you might do some security analysis on it. Then you might go for a build. Um, so you, you can basically mix and match the types of actions that you run. Um, and, and really it's, it's up to you what you build in that because you do just have, let's say, an Ubuntu instance. So you can install, you know, your own um, dependencies in order to do your builds. Um, it's quite flexible um, from, from from that perspective. Um, so yeah, so I'm not going to really dive too deep into pipelines, but if you are currently using CI/CD, um, it's it's very feature complete in terms of the the, the software that is supported and the environments in which you can run run it on, both in the cloud and on-premise as well, if you wish.
Okay, cool. So, yeah. So, what are um, let's think about the next thing. So, uh, test plans. Yeah, what are they, or what is it? Okay, so the bane of a lot of development teams uh, testing. Um, so, uh, I suppose it's probably first good for me to give you a bit of background on Microsoft in general in terms of development. Um, if you imagine that. Technolo Microsoft technologies, like things like uh, the .NET framework, um, I would say they they were always more geared to around the enterprise, right? Um, you know, there are some .NET like open source projects, things like Umbraco and um, different you know development projects that are out there. Um, but a lot of .NET developers are enterprise application, business application development. Development. That's kind of my background as well. Um, so inside of the full Visual Studio, we've always had testing, the, abil the ability to do, you know, unit tested, automated testing. And that's been in many different places. Um, but Microsoft have always really well catered for that full development lifecycle for enterprise application development. Um, and other people do it as well. But I'm just calling out that, you know, Microsoft approaches it, I believe, from an enterprise first sort of, you know, from, from their side. And what test plans is really is it's it, and it's it's the way for you to build, um, literally build your test plans that you're going to run through. So to start off with, you can just build manual test plans. So at the moment, you might be building test plans in a Google Sheet or a Excel, you know, workbook of the steps that you want to go through, and then you know, or you might have put it in a wiki or, or something like that. Um, what you can do with Azure test plans is you can build your test plans in there. You can assign it to people and then you can track the, you know, record the the actual run of that test um, that you, you did in the real world. Capture all the feedback and store it there. Directly from those interfaces, you can raise bugs. You can link into the test plan notes and it's all highly integrated with um, Azure boards at, at that point. You can also track feedback as well. So as people, like maybe you've got a QA engineer um, and they are actually testing your software, you can track their feedback and, and the artifacts that they've produced from their testing um, as well. You can report on the progress um, of the test plans as they, they're run through and also the status of them. You know, so how green are your test plans, you know, even your manual ones. I think probably what is even uh, more popular um, in today's world is automated testing. So if you do things like um, uh, unit testing, uh, integration testing, sometimes called uh, black box testing, uh, you might use chaos testing. There's many different things. Um, mutation test, there's very different, different ways to automatically test software. Um, but you can use, uh, with supported uh, libraries, you can run automated tests in the cloud um, as well as part of your test testing uh, plans. Um, and you can also do sort of um, web UI testing with Selenium. Um, so in, in those scenarios, you might actually be, you might build your software automatically with your pipelines and you might run an automated UI test as well. Um, that also allows you to not actually do it, that some of that testing inside of your pipelines, which a lot of people do as well. Um, there's, it's also sort of carved out into its own section as well uh, with test plans. Um, because it also links to your wider testing strategy. Um, it's not just development testing, 
you know, we're also talking about, you know, manual testing by QA engineers, you know, and you want all of the results of that um, to feed into to, to one thing. Okay, great. I mean, there's just so much in, in this product. Even just talking about you know, these small sections will seem that that, it, that seems like small sections. It, it reminds me of Defender of a Cloud, right? Where it's like, <laughs> oh, that's just one product. And then you open it up, it's like, oh, it's 15 different things in, yes. in, in one thing. Yeah. So um, that's why I'm not going too, too deep in each one of them. Um, I just want to give you the yeah. key features, the value benefits, and why, um, how you can convince the higher ups to buy you some licenses, <laughs> if that makes sense. Cool, cool, cool. So, okay. So, um azure artifacts they seem quite interesting um yeah what are they okay so um development teams will build um literal software artifacts that can be consumed by other people so if you've um ever used javascript you might have heard of npm and npm packages um npm packages are um effectively um, sort of bundled JavaScript code that gives you the ability to do different things in your own application. So you could basically say, um, so there's there's um, plugins to convert date and times across time zones because that is a complicated thing to do, right? You know, user A is in one time zone, user B is in another time zone. What's the date difference between them? That can get complex, um, especially with you know, different standards of... Uh, it's horrible. So, you know, uh, really lovely open source developers um, produce um, NPM packages. So they build open source software, they publish them on NPM, and then people can um, use them in their applications. Um, they're licensed, but generally they're, um, especially if you're just consuming them and not changing them, um, they're usually really uh, permissive um, licenses. Now, if you're a if, if you're building custom software, um, you might decide that you want to build an NPM package for your core business logic. Um, maybe you've got a really complex calculation that's only bespoke to your business. Um, and you've got multiple systems inside your organization that might need to use that business logic. You might decide to package it up. Um, so if you're using .NET, you would want to build a NuGet package. If you're using JavaScript, you might want to build an NPM package. Um, if you're using JavaScript, uh, Java, sorry, um, you may want a Maven package um, and so on and so forth. Now, you can go to NPM and you can buy a private um, NPM. I think it's called a repository. Um, but effectively, what that allows you to do is your developers to connect to NPM to download um, modules uh, from NPM, um, but without anybody else being able to do it. So you can publish your own sort of like you know, feed of um, uh, different modules. Um, and that's that's okay. But again, it's another like ecosystem. It's another cost. It's another extension of extension outside of your ecosystem, if, if that makes sense, right? Um, so what Azure Artifacts does is it allows you to build things like NuGet packages, NPM packages, Python packages, Maven packages, and you can build feeds inside your organization. So Alan is the time zone calculator guy. I'll just use that example. Um, and Alan's responsibility is to make sure all the time zone conversion is done correctly in the organization. Um, so Alan builds, and let's say we're .NET developers. Um, Alan builds a NuGet package for that. And then let's say I'm a consumer of that. 
um, I can then uh, use that NuGet package in my .NET application. Um, then Alan, Alan wants to update his code um, because there's a, I'm not going to say there's a new time zone. Let's pretend there's a new time zone. Uh, <laughs> Mars is now in scope, just, just not just Earth, right? Um, so Alan then, um, you know, creates a new uh, NuGet package um, for that with a new version. Um, I can decide when I migrate to that new package um, because in NuGet there's a different version of each one of his packages. So Alan could write his code, use DevOps boards and repos to then push his code in. He could use pipelines to build it. And then he could use Azure artifacts, which are highly integrated with Azure pipelines, by the way, um, to store the artifacts and to build that NuGet package. So from Alan writing his code to somebody reviewing it to actually going into the NuGet feed so I can consume it can now be fully automated. So there's no zipping, uploading to a share or, or something like that. It's all just completely integrated um, into these um, systems. You can also have upstream feeds as well. So you can have like feeds of feeds. I won't really go into that, but that is supported. And that's quite a powerful feature um, because you can have m many different teams feeding in and other packages. So you could also say that you could block public, public NuGet um, and you could only allow certain packages into your private feeds. So you can you can control inside the organization what pack what even open source packages have been um, uh, verified. Um, and as I've mentioned, um, really tightly integrated with Azure pipelines. So there's actions in pipelines um, that allow you to publish to Azure artifacts once you once you're completed. Um, it can also I haven't used this before, but it can also host your symbol files. So when you um, when you build software, you strip the debug symbols out of it so that somebody can't attach a debugger to it effectively. Um, but what you might want to do is you might want to actually debug one of your production builds because you might have a bug that is only seen in production. You can use those simple files to inject into your debugger, and then your debugger will understand that production build, even though it's maybe been obfuscated um, as it's come out the other side. So there is also a symbol um, a simple file like hosting service um, in there as well, because those simple files, again, bit of a nightmare to track because you'll make your production build. It'll also give you some simple files and you're like, what should I do with those simple files? You know, should I go back and commit them to the Git repo? What's the right, what's the right place for them? So that's another thing that that's, that's really, well, it's not really, it's for all applications really. Yeah, I'm not, I was going to say it's only for desktop apps. It's not desktop apps. It's all applications have simple files. But, um, you know, there, there's also that to, to, to manage and track as well, which it, it does do. Okay, great. So moving on to the next sort of section, um, you mentioned about on-premise sort of solutions and the Azure DevOps server. Can you give us a quick overview on that? Yep. So imagine, so this is Azure DevOps services, as I think is the full name. So it's the cloud service that Microsoft uh, manages for you. You can still, as I mentioned before, you can still connect your on-prem um, um, runners into online as well. Um, but Azure DevOps server is all of, well, the vast majority of these features, actually, um, the vast, vast majority of these features, but hosted inside of your network. Um, the data stays in your network. So if you are in a highly regulated industry um, and you need it to stay on-prem, you know, maybe you're highly sensitive as well, 
Um, what can sometimes happen is, is you don't have the tooling on-prem for that. There are solutions. You can get GitHub Enterprise. You can get Jira. There's, there's other t tooling out there to do it. Um, so, so Microsoft's also supporting that. If you've ever used team, uh, Visual Studio Team Services, um, which is basically Teams Foundation Server, um, which was, th that's um, like an on-premise uh, TFS um, a code hosting solution um, that had other services in it as well. This is the replacement uh, for that if you're using it. Um, you can do Active Directory integration um, with it as well uh, on-prem and it's SQL Server uh, backend. So if you've got, uh, if you want to do your reporting in SQL Server, um, you can do that as well on-prem. That's one of the bigger sort of, because um, uh, what, what you'll sometimes have is in larger organizations, you'll, you'll feed the, the information about the build server into a completely segregated system, uh, maybe even proprietary systems. So the reporting services can be um, more helpful to you, to you there. Okay, cool. So you kind of talked about access control for sort of on-premise. What about in the cloud? Okay, so there's a full sort of RBAC model inside of uh, Azure DevOps services uh, where you can have granular control. It is it is very extensive about you know who can see what, what people can you know you can chop up uh, the projects and the different areas of each project um, really nicely inside of that, um, and it can also be directly integrated with Azure Active Directory. So um, from an authentication perspective, um, you know. Your your identities kind of basically flow in from um, Azure Active Directory. Um, you can create um, sort of global permission structures, and then you can have those just automatically feed down to the projects, and then you can even override them at the project level to get like full granular permission um, structure. I won't go into all of it because it can get a bit crazy, um, but you know, um, effectively. Because software development, the process of software development is so sensitive anyway, um, that's quite well respected in Azure DevOps, I'd say. You know, there's, there is a lot of different configuration. And it's, you know, we're talking about maybe access control, um, like RBAC, but, you know, also code controls, you know, who can see what, what they can do mm. with code, you know. Can they export it? Can they clone it down? All of those different Git sort of access control mechanisms as well are also supported um, very nicely. Okay, cool. And I think if I remember, you can also invite B2B guests into there as well. I think I've done that previously so that you can have third parties come in and do their, like their, you know, have their RBAC model in there and do their piece of code or development. Yeah, that's what yeah. I believe. Yep. Cool. Okay. So, the suite sounds amazing. There is tons and tons in there. How much does it cost? <laughs> okay. So there's a, there's quite a few different ways um, and different types of it's different types of users and there's also different types of services. And so there is a bit of a matrix going on here, right? Because it's not... It's not, there's not just like three SKUs and you just decide which <laughs> one. I'll start off with open source. Okay. Um, so for open source, you can get um, 
so for public repositories, you can get uh, free uh, parallel jobs uh, for public projects. So you can have 10 parallel pipeline projects, um, parallel jobs, sorry, uh, for public projects running there. Um, and you can also then layer on, so if you want to just do pipelines, um, you, can, you can have that as well. Um, or you can then opt in for, you know, actual DevOps. Um, and that is then really covered in, it's kind of the same with the free tier, really. You get five users for free to start off with, which is very similar to things like Bitbucket and other solutions. Um, so that gives you your pipelines, your boards, your repos, your artifacts, your test um, plans. Um, and then on top of that, you can pay $6 a month per user if you want to build in private at that point as well. Um, the vast majority of Microsoft ecosystems developers may probably be under Visual Studio, um, like MSDN, Visual Studio licensing. Um, so, so dependent on your Visual Studio subscription, you get different um, access to DevOps and also different levels of um, consumption that you can do inside of there. Um, I'm not going to really jump into that because I, I mainly want to talk about the different types of users as well um, in, in DevOps. Because what can sometimes trip up a lot of development um, platforms is how much you've got to pay per user. Now, this sometimes gets a bit tricky because you might have like non-technical stakeholders. You know, maybe you've got a, a head of or, or something like that that needs access to things like dashboards and, and things like that, but they don't, they don't build software. They, they're not project managers. They're not product managers. They're not QAs. They're, you know, non potentially non-technical stakeholders around the project. They are always free, um, in, in DevOps. So they can, they can add, um, they can add work items, which is great. They can query them. They can look at backlogs. They can get alerted and they can provide feedback as well. Um, then you've got basic, um, which has all of that. Um, but then you can do things like um, uh, delivery plans, uh, do Azure repos. Um, they can commit to Git repositories and create them. Um, and they can do, basically, they can do more development, developer and more product focus actions across all the various different areas, um, if that makes sense. Um, and then you, then you basically have basic plus test plans because test plans is like another because there's also hosted um, tooling there as well so there's like another level on top of that um, to include test plans and then you've also got an open source um, user which effectively has access to everything um, it's just for public repositories at that point so there's a couple of different ways you can license it um, you start off with a user license uh, usually so the basic plan is your $5, uh, five free users and then your $6 a month, just like the open source um, extension plan. That gives you pipelines, boards, Azure repos, and artifacts. Um, so on top of your five, you then pay $6 per month. Um, but then you can, you can basically extend that with test plans. So you, you add your basic, then you add your test plans on top. The, the, the cost then goes up quite dramatically because when we're talking about test plans and management of test plans, that is a very sort of businessy, enterprisey um, sort of feature. Um, that then includes um, test plans. So um, 
So being able to do browser tests and client-side test execution, planning those tests, um, tracking them, and, and providing feedback there, and also doing all the reporting of that. Um, that is a straight $52 per month per user. So you go from, let's call it $6 a month. I know you get five free, but just ignore those for the moment. Um, you know, that's another 40, what's that, $46 um, add-on for, for test plans. Um, but you can get very, very, you know, you've got hosted runners there with environments to be able to actually test even desktop software. So there's also a, a you know, a, a hosted element um, with that as well. Um, so when, so that's sort of like um, the software, uh, sort of the admin interface side of things. But then you've got um, separate pricing for um, Azure pipelines and Azure artifacts. So by default, you get one uh, one free hosted runner with Azure pipelines, which allows you to do one parallel job. So you can only do one thing at a time and you get 1800 minutes a month for free. So if you're on the basic plan, you also get that as well. So up to five users without test plans, you get one free Microsoft hosted um, runner. If you want to then go, um, you can you can promote that to a non-free runner. So unlimited minutes, um, and then you pay per parallel job that you want. So if you want um, two parallel, so two jobs that can run at the same time, probably going to be pretty good for a lot of teams. Um, that's $40 per month per parallel job. So for two, you'd be charged $80 a month. Um, that's not for each environment or even each project. That's just you can basically only run two parallel jobs at any one time for $80 a month. So you could be running two parallel jobs constantly um, for a month. Um, so it's just really up to you how many builds you're doing and how quick you want those builds to execute. Because some builds can take potentially hours to build as well. So you might need extra capacity um, from that perspective. Um, you can also do self-hosted pipelines as well. Um, the first self-hosted pipeline that you, um, that you um, each parallel, the first free parallel job is free. So you can, you can have multiple runners locally, but you can only do one thing at a time, uh, basically. If you want to go to two, you pay $15 a month, and then you pay $15 a month on top of all of them uh, going on. So, you know, you either pay Microsoft $40 or you pay, you host it yourself and still pay $15 a month. But, and that might not seem like a great deal, but they're handling, you know, the actual running of the code and actually, you know, sending it down and, and bringing it back up as well. So you do have to manage the operating system they're installed on, but and but in theory you could have like bare metal performance of your builds as well which could be um pretty good um and the last thing just to talk about really is azure artifacts uh oh, sorry on the on the cloud side is azure artifacts um you get two gigabytes of artifacts for free which for a lot of teams is it's pretty good it depends how many how big your artifacts are and how many you want to keep in your feeds um you could you get a, a NuGet server um and you can support for npm and upstream sources. Um, so basically the full feature set for up to two gigabytes. And then it's basically, 
every it has a sliding scale. So from two to ten gigabytes, it's two gigabytes per per month at two dollars per gigabyte per month. Then it drops to one gigabyte, and then it drops to half. Uh, no, it drops to one dollar, then half a dollar, and then a you know, um, and and twenty five cents, um, depending on how much um, you're actually storing. So it's like a sliding scale of um, a price consumption pricing there. Um, that's cloud side. So it is a bit complicated because there's different ways to and different uh, SKUs that you get with other um, services that are going on here. Um, and then the DevOps server, um, there's basically two ways to to buy it. There's a classic purchasing. Um, so you can buy it from, you can buy direct cows um, for DevOps server uh, through Microsoft software resellers. Um, so there's there's a, a new server license and there's a there's a cow for a single user as well. Um, and then there's also but there's also a way to pay through Azure. So you can buy Visual Studio subscriptions, so Visual Studio Professional um, or Enterprise, um, or you could just go um, directly um, to um, to to online DevOps as well. Um, is was also a way to um, uh, license it as well. So that, I think I believe that carries down uh, like cloud cloud licensing into on-prem licensing, if if that makes sense. But you would be potentially wasting your resources in the cloud. So, but if you need the on-prem, then that would make sense for you. Yeah. Okay. Cool. That sounds a lot there. And I think uh, when I first looked at this, what three, four years ago, because DevOps has been around quite some time now. I think Azure DevOps. Um, I think. The, the basic plus test plan was the one that you could only get, I think. And they, they brought in this basic one, which gives you quite a lot. I thought there was only two plans, the, the the stakeholders one, like you said, the free one, and then a paid one at one point. And it seemed quite expensive. So it looks like they've brought in this um, yeah, basic I, plan to help I, you. I, I thought that you got, it was f stakeholder and basic. And then if I remember rightly, that test plans was always bundled in with Visual Studio. That's what I thought it was orig okay. uh, originally. But to be honest with you, um, I I've mainly worked in teams that have just been stakeholder and basic, you know. Um, yeah. And unless, because a lot of the time, teams that I've worked in, the QAs and testers actually had their own software for tracking things, and and we didn't need it, and a lot of it was done by hand anyway. So. Um, so yeah, you can do a lot just with and and basic. Um, you get one hosted runner, you get all of the software free for up to five users, even in private. Right, that's still really powerful. Right, if you're open source, you get even more parallel jobs, which is really powerful as well. Um, so even just basic, you get a huge amount yeah. of functionality in it for sure. Cool. Okay, so we're. Definitely a long episode. Oh, sorry, everybody. Um, We're up to an hour. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, let's, let's wrap this up. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, is, is there anything we've missed? But probably no, not. No, I'm not. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> if we have missed it, um, yeah, it's probably worth, it's absolutely fine to leave it out for sure. Um, but yeah, there's a lot there and we, we will dive into some of it in some separate episodes, um, definitely, um, to give you some more detail. Cool. Okay, so next episode is going to be... You know, uh, me being the, the SME, 
Um, and I'm going to talk about, I'm going to sort of finish off kind of the, the Windows 365 and Azure virtual desktop sort of campaign that we've kind of been going on. You know, we did AV, AVD um, sort of over the beginning of this season or just um, at the end of the last one. And we talked about Windows 365 a couple of weeks ago. Um, so this is kind of uh, doing a comparison against them because um, there's definitely some, it's not to say pros and cons, they're just using different sort of scenarios, I think. So we're just going to run through that because uh, I think it's worth doing. Yeah, they're very similar tools, aren't they? And um, there's definitely a decision process there. And yeah. it's not it's not a black and white uh, process either, is it? So no. it's definitely good to 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 get your thoughts on that for sure. Yep. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode, uh, please do consider subscribing if you'd like to listen to more of this sort of content in the future. Um, we have many more topics that we'd like to cover, and your listens and support is what will continue to fuel the podcast going forward. We also have the ability for you to give some feedback. Did you enjoy this episode? Disagree with our thoughts? Or is there anything that we missed? Uh, please use the form, the contact form in the show notes. Um, or you can leave us a voice message on our website in the bottom right corner. There's a little um, button there. So, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks, Alan. And catch you all in the next one. Yep. Thanks, everyone. Speak to you next week. Bye.